Coming up on today's episode of the Real Lives Podcast with Manny and Mitchell. The wheel ended up like either coming off or the axle broke and it made me go into incoming lanes, two lanes of traffic, into a stone or like brick wall that's like 12 feet high. Your body and your mind become aligned in, in doing those things. So when you take that away, what do I do now? Like. I'm at least gonna get seventh place. Like if I don't get last, I did my job. My agent that I had at the time, he was like, you're gonna make more money and you're gonna be more known for this very moment than anything else you will ever do. When you look at it like that, it was kind of like bittersweet. It was like, man, did I let my team down? But also, gosh, could do people realize like what I just did? Like, I didn't have to do that. I chose to do that. Again, just before we get into the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, comment, share the podcast, all that good stuff. Just by doing those simple things, which take about five seconds, it helps me get bigger guests as obviously the more following, the more people who are willing to come onto the podcast and be interviewed. So I'd really appreciate all your help and I hope you enjoy this episode with Olympic silver medalist, Manio Mitchell. Manio, um, you're a professional athlete and you have been for over 10 years. Um, and we know that less than 1% is probably the 0.1% of people who try to become a professional athlete do make it as one. So what was it that made you stand out from the rest and become the professional athlete and make it a career of longevity like you have work ethic man um definitely something that can go along with every endeavor that you take on in life um just being able to work hard and not necessarily try to reap the benefits right away but to know that if you do work hard in the and the work that you do put in you're going to reap the success later if you do it the right way so i think that's a vote to, I guess, uh, perseverance is a word that you could use. Um, I have a lot of perseverance and a lot of self-perseverance as well. Like I obviously have coaches and uh, a team and doctors and a staff that take care of me and help take care of my body and keep me in check. But you also have to have that self-belief as well. Um, so if I had to say one thing that, that really makes me stand out, and there, of course there's other people, but within that 1% or that less than 1% is just that self-motivation, that, that dedication. What point was it during your young career that you realized that actually you could make it as a professional athlete? Um, I would say the thought came around probably my sophomore year of college. Um, I had gone from running 50 seconds my senior year of high school to running right at 46 seconds. So I was like, okay, the fastest times right now are like only two seconds away. And I was like, I use the word only very loosely. Yeah, I was going to say uh, <laughs> two <laughs> seconds is a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of time over 400 meters. But I was like, you know what? I've, I've made this improvement in like two years or less. So if let's say I, I improve another four seconds, which that's obviously not going to happen. But I was like, even if I improve a second and a half, I'm with the elites. Like I, I can do that. I, I know that I can do that. And my coach believed in me as well. So um, I would say that it, it initiated in probably my sophomore year of college, but then like once I progressed through my collegiate career and started running 20 points and the 45s, that's when I was like, okay, like this can be a real thing. And then, you know, once school was over, I was like, let's just make it happen. Let's try and see. We won't know unless we try. So uh, that's kind of how we, how we did that. What was it that drew you to track events instead of sort of game-based sports like football or baseball or anything like that? For me, you know, I, I grew up playing like the team sports and track and field is a team sport within itself, but it's more individually based. Obviously, you guys know that. But um, I would say, you know, growing up, I was five years old playing football and basketball. So I became burnt out on that because I started so early in, the, in those sports. Um, and then track and field didn't really come about until like my junior, senior year of high school. Um, and you know, for me, I always tell people, they're like, how did you get in track and field? Well, for me, running was always punishment in all my other sports that I participated in. It's like, if you mess up on play, you got to run. If you drop a pass, you're going to run at practice. Or if you miss a shot, you guys are going to run. If you're not listening, you're going to run. So it was always punishment. And, you know, I, I had a high school coach who was a really, really top level track and field athlete in his own right. He went to the Olympic trials and everything as well and ran in college. And uh, I think it was really him that kind of instilled in me that that quality, like, hey, or in that belief that I mentioned uh, before, you really work at this, like, you can really be good at this. I really think you have the body of work to 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 make it in the professional ranks on down the road. And little did I know, six years later, I'd be there. So it's, it's just crazy. 
It's crazy. So when you're at college, obviously the the transition from high school level sport to college level sport is pretty significant, especially in the States. So what was one thing you noticed that you weren't doing and quickly had to change up when you got to college? Ooh, for me, um, it was just uh, recovering. So really, really taking, because everybody at the elite level is pretty decent in what they do. Um, there's no real outlier in, in that, in that scope of 43 to 44 second runners or nine, eight to 10 flat runners. There's no, everybody's in that little pocket. There's no one like super far out here. Yeah. Um, and the, the ones that if, if this is the bottom of the level and this is the top, the ones that are in this section are the ones that, that are eating clean they're getting the sleep. They're doing the things that they need to do to do what they did today, but then come back tomorrow and do the same thing or give the same effort. So I really took that um, like very, very seriously. Um, so even to this day, like I still do all those things. I'm still making sure that I recover my body. I'm fueling my body properly so that you can, you have to stay elite. It's like having a Lamborghini. You can't go and just get a standard oil change on a Lamborghini. <laughs> it's not going to perform well. Right. Yeah. So you have to treat your body like that as well. Um, and that's why, I mean, anything that you do and put into your body is going to create a result. So to get the best results, you have to do the, the right things. What's it like being a college athlete? Because I've heard stories, but never really spoken about it to anyone in terms of like the, the schedule of being, you know, the, the athlete in the morning and then going to classes in the evening or what have you. Like, what was your schedule looking like while you were doing that? Um, for me, you know, I, I embody the quality of being a student athlete. That's what I was in college. Um, so I was a student first and then I was an athlete because I knew growing up, like my mom stressed that education is here and everything else falls underneath. I couldn't do all the sports I wanted to do unless my grades were right. So yeah. I made sure that I had that. I guess what I'm trying to say is I made sure I had that work and school balance because track and field or whatever your sport is, that's your work. Um, but if, if you're a college athlete for me, I had to make sure that I was on top of my grades so that I could be eligible to compete. Mm. Um, and my coach who, who still coaches me to this day, uh, Danny Williamson, he, he really stressed that, you know, we're here to get an education, to get that degree. And if you're good enough to, to go to the next level, then we'll make that decision when it's time. So we wanted to make sure that everybody got their degrees. And that was, you know, what was really, really stressed because at the end of the day, your competitive career is going to end at some point. Yeah. Um, hopefully it's not an injury or anything like that, but we just wanted to make sure that, you know, I got the education and then everything else fell into place. So my schedule, um, it wasn't too harsh. I did indoor and outdoor track. I didn't even know what indoor track was until I got to college. Cause I never, I never, I never knew that that was even a thing. Yeah. Um, and so that was very difficult for me because I was like, man, I'm not used to, I'm used to running for like two or three months and being, that's it and going straight to football or going back to basketball. So um, at first it was a lot to handle, but once I got used to the system and, you know, got used to that, that way of work that we did and how we did training and how school and all that intertwined, um, then it became a lot easier. So you kind of just get into a groove and then you just go with it. Do you think it's something that people neglect is when they become an athlete at college, they spend most of their time worrying about being an athlete and then neglect the education side of it? Yes. Um, I do feel like, I, I think right now with the the likes of social media and and videography and all these things, I didn't have this stuff in high school and going into college. Mm. I think Facebook had just come out when I got to college, which is really showing how old I am right now, which is, you're, a, you're one of the lucky ones though, I'd say. <laughs> yeah. So again, it's, it's about that work balance. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I, I really feel like today's society of, of athletes, especially elite athletes, you have to use that to really put you out there to really garner those interests of, of sponsors and brands. And also the companies that you represent and obviously, you know, whatever country you represent, as well. They want to see that stuff because it enhances their brand as well. So um, just being able to, like I said earlier, like create that, that balance, knowing that I have to get my work done, but I also need to stress that this is important as well and find that, that I guess on that, on that spectrum where it all meets. 
you know of the YouTube channel, De- I think it's called Destroying, the college athlete? Yeah, yeah so he, I, I basically le- learned about his story a couple of months ago, and I found it fascinating the fact that athletes could not monetize themselves as an athlete. They had to just, whatever you know their scholarship was, that was all they could live off. Mm-hmm. And you know, I guess you were, again, you were kind of one of the lucky ones because there was no social media. There wasn't really an opportunity to monetize right. at the time. Um, but now do you think it's now moving in the right direction where athletes can now worry about monetizing themselves and making the money when they have the opportunity to, because obviously some of them might not make it past college. Right. Um, it's funny because I did an interview about three years ago where I called this possibly happening, um, that athletes would soon be able to monetize on their name, image, and likeness, which for everyone who doesn't know, that's the NIL that you hear. That's what that stands for. Um, I have two parts to this. Number one, I think it's great. I honestly think it's great because universities, colleges, businesses, you know, they, they can benefit off of, you know, number one in whatever jersey who's really, really good for the university. Without even saying their name, they know they know who you are, um, and they can use that, and they use that for advertising. And sponsors pay lots of money for that uh, to fuel your team or your system or whatever it is. So for athletes to be able to benefit off of their name, image, and likeness, I think that's very important. I think it's a good step. Um, but on the back end, the the part two to that is they need to make sure that there's some kind of financial literacy involved in this because. For an 18, 19-year-old who's in college, who's a really talented athlete, because again, it's important to remember that not all athletes in college can can benefit from that. Only like mm-hmm. the really, really cream of the crop, like top elite athletes are going to benefit because they're the ones with the higher, you know, ratings and things like that. So um, I really hope, and I, I think it's been about a year now, so I'm hoping that it moves to a point where there's some kind of li- financial literacy involved so that, for example, you have a 19-year-old who signs a nil deal for 25 grand for for wearing some crocs or something like what are you doing with that money and how are you going to use that to fail your season or to you know to benefit you instead of going out buying a car or buying the latest shoes or all those things in which you can do that stuff but i think there's a certain way that needs to be done or at least some kind of literacy that needs to be involved and uh those decision making moments that come about with you know like a young athlete getting this lump sum of money or recurring income from these deals. I, I hope that they're doing it the right way. Hopefully they have the agents that uh, have their, the best interest in mind. And uh, yeah, so I think it's a good thing if it's done correctly. It's, it's absolutely fascinating the whole college system to me, because going to university in the UK, there's no like university sports isn't really a thing. Like yeah. you have a you have academy level and then you have professional and that's it. There's no, whereas with you lot, it feels like the the wild west in terms of, you know, there's kids who are 18 signing like 400,000 to a million dollar contracts with universities. Yeah. yeah. And if I, when I was 18, if I got told, you know, here's a million dollars to come to my university, there, there'd be no question. It would oh, be a straight, sure. straight up. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, it's, it's different here, obviously. Um, but it's, it's almost like a bidding war because we have so many universities, so many colleges that these athletes can pick and choose from. And it's like, okay, now with this NIL, it's like, who who's giving me the, the best deal? Hmm. You know, so hopefully that doesn't take away from the rich history of the universities and the main reason why you're there, which is to get it to obtain a, a college education, to further your education, whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully it goes and continues to go in the right direction. Yeah. So you said as well, like when you finished um, college and you, you know, decided I'm going to make a go of this and become a professional athlete. What were the steps then once you finished? Because I feel like that could be quite a gray area in terms of having a direction of where you want to go. Right. Um, For me at that time, that was like 2009, 2010. Um, There weren't a lot of resources as they are now, especially with track and field, like the professionalism of track and field is very conflicting and confusing to the general public. Um, I remember 
being post-collegiate, I wasn't even officially pro yet. I remember being post-collegiate and running at my alma mater, which is where I was still training, and people thought that I was still in school. Now, I was in grad school, but I wasn't running for the university. I didn't have Western Carolina, you know, on my chest. I didn't have the purple and gold on my chest. I had on like a Nike uniform because I was given gear um, from the brand to, to represent uh, before I even signed a deal. Um, and that was very confusing. So for me, the steps I took was obviously I said I went into grad school, so I was still studying, um, getting my master's degree. But at the same time, I reached out to USA Track and Field. I started garnering the interest of agents and got a lot of no's. I got one yes, and I signed with that agent. And then it was like, hey, we're going to send you overseas, test the waters a little bit. I went over there, made a little bit of money, came back. And then uh, from there, we just progressed on and then was like, hey, let's try to make this Olympic team. And then that's how it was. But nowadays, um, there's a lot more resources. Um, obviously, if you're running, you know, 10 seconds flat or under or 20 seconds flat or under or whatever those elite marks are, uh, no matter what the event is, even throwing or jumping, um, they're going to see that and they're going to come after you anyway. So it's a lot easier now than it was then to, to be seen, especially me coming from a very, very small school. Um but still making the noise for people to be like, okay, this guy right here, I want to see what he's about. So that's kind of how we how we went about it. But like I said, it's a lot it's a lot better now. Um, obviously, with social media and things like that, you know, people are getting picked up on NFL teams just from their Instagram account. Like it, it's yeah, crazy. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um. So in terms of the because obviously you work in the Olympic cycles, don't you, in track and field and. Um, all these different kinds of events, even bobsled like you do now, it's always that four-year Olympic cycle. Um, so at what point during that 2008 to 2012 period were you sort of, it was obviously a goal to get there, but were you almost kind of certain you would get there? Um, I would say I was never certain. I wasn't even certain after I crossed the line at the Olympic trials. <laughs> Because I, I came off the line, off the 300 meter mark in first place. And then I got passed and then I got passed again. And I thought I got third and I got out leaned at the line and I ended up getting fifth by like a couple thousands of a second. So um, I didn't, I didn't realize that the relay was going to be the top six guys or basically everybody that made the final, but really the top six. So I didn't realize it, but I had, I had run a PR uh, personal best at the time Um and, you know, once I found out and I got that certificate that said proceed to team processing, that's when I was assured and certain at that moment. But before all of that, I had an idea that, you know, I came in unattached. I wasn't signed to a pro deal yet. Um, you know, I, I was sandwiched in between the defending Olympic champion from 2008, the other defending champion from 2004. These guys all ran for the U.S., plus the NCAA champions were all around me. And here I am in in lane two, unaware of um, and aware of all these things, but uncertain for sure. Like, OK, I'm at least going to get first, second, third, fourth. I'm at least going to get seventh place. So if I don't mm -hmm. get last, that's how I went. And I was like, if I don't get last, I did my job because I'm technically not faster than any of these guys. But as long as I don't get last, I'll be good. But, you know, things worked out. I went out there with a plan, and my coach and I, we executed it, and it, it worked out. So, yeah, I would say I always had an envision probably since 2010 that this is what I wanted to do, maybe even early 2000 or late 2010, early 2011 with, you know what, I'm going to really buckle down to see if I can make – or not see if I can make this team, but to make this team. That That's the vision I had, and then it worked out. So in terms of – tactics <clears throat> the tactics for um a 400 meter event for example what what kind of tactics are you going through with your coach beforehand because to the to the public eye it's essentially you run in a 400 meter circle and then you're done but obviously there's so much more to it as an athlete yeah um well i don't even run the 400 anymore but i still remember you know everything that's housed within that and to correctly answer that, it, it just varies from, from athlete to athlete. You're going to have some athletes who, like me, were a mixture of the two. They got a lot of speed, but they also have the endurance background. Um, and then, because in college, that's what that's how I was taught to run. 
But then you also have those athletes that have just straight up speed with a little bit of endurance or the back end, they have a lot of endurance or maybe they drop down from the 400 hurdles or the 800 to, to add speed to now become a 400 runner. So it really just varies from, from person to person, athlete to athlete. But I think finding that balance, finding what works for you, um, and then just going out and executing a race strategy is usually the people that do really well in the event. Mm. At what point did it feel real that you were going to the Olympics? Like, cause I spoke to a snowboard cross athlete who represented GB at the last winter Olympics. And he said it was the moment he was on the plane. That was his, his like, Oh shit moment. What was yours? Um, the moment that it hit me was probably um, when I got home. When I got home from the Olympic trials, because I, I came home very briefly because I went right back overseas to compete before the games. When I got home and there was this huge like celebration and all this stuff, which was very short-lived for me because I was all about business. But once I got home and, and the people that have supported me since I was a little kid, the people that have cheered for me, since the very beginning, my family, um, once, once I got home, that's when it really hit. Like these people are so proud of me, um, proud of me more than I am of myself because I've never really looked at it like that. But, um, yeah, I'd say once I got home and then it really, really hit the night of opening ceremonies, Hmm. the night of opening ceremonies where, I mean, it, it was hot and, uh, we did a lot of walking for a lot of time. Um, <laughs> but I, I did it because, you know, it was an experience. It's like, Hey, you may not ever come back here. Just go ahead and experience it. Plus track and field fortunately is at the end of the program. So we were the last like week and a half of the games anyways. And we had plenty of time to recover and train and all that stuff. So, um, I got with some of my teammates and, and my new friends from team USA. And, uh, yeah, it was quite the experience, but walking into the stadium, knowing that, you know, Opening ceremonies always for track and field or for summer games always happens in the Olympic Stadium, which is where track and field is. So it's like we're the cream of the crop. Like we are the show. That's how we felt. And uh, to, to be able to walk that lap around the track, knowing that I'm going to run it in about a week and a half was just surreal to me. So that's really when it hit. Did you go into that games injured? No, I didn't go in. <clears throat> because it's only because. So, for example, Conor McGregor fought Dustin Poirier a couple of year ago or so, um, snapped his ankle in the fight. And it turns out from the documentary that's just been released, the whole build up to the fight he spent within with problems with that ankle. So yeah. I wasn't sure, given your scenario, whether you went into that injured and just pushed through it, or it was a case of it was just a freak accident. No, um, what happened and it's, pretty public nowadays, but what happened was three days prior to August 9th. So on August 6th, I was at a training session at the Olympic, uh, at the Olympic games, obviously. And, um, I, before we got to training, I tripped up a set of stairs, uh, concrete stairs in our apartment at the, in the Olympic village. And I ended up hitting that same spot that three days later ended up breaking. Um, okay. so that's kind of what it was. Yeah. So I guess you can say I pushed through, Obviously, I pushed through injury within the, the event itself, but um, I had an x-ray that day or later that night after I finished training, and it was kind of like a bone bruise, uh, no swelling, yeah. nothing like that, just sore. Um, but, you know, mind over matter, I kind of just pushed that to the side, and I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. And everything was good, and I, I believe what the doctors eventually said is um, the stress and pressure – that you put on your body at that peak level of competitiveness and the mental stress that, that goes along with it is what caused it to snap. Yeah. You're at the start line, you're waiting, you know, you're waiting to go. There's obviously you, you're giving you specific time that the event's going to start. And there's like, say the 10 minutes in the build up to that. What are you doing in that time to get yourself in the zone and ready to go? Um, music. Music and just making sure my body's prepped. Obviously, our coaches and my coaches as well. Um, everybody, we had we have a great team and, and staff. Whenever we send teams over, we always we're always going to have the best of the best of everything. Um, so we were as a team prepared, but more importantly, individually, I was prepared to do the unthinkable, whatever I needed to do to 
to get the baton around. And I think that's just a true testament to, you know, again, like taking care of your body, doing all these things. But for me, music is what kept me like calm and sane and, you know, able to get through all these stressful issues because it is a lot of pressure um, being an elite athlete at that level. Um, mm-hmm. When you're at the Olympic Games, or at least for me, you, you're not running in that lane by yourself. There's your country, number one, your teammates, number two, um, your family, number three, your fans, everybody in the world is waiting for you because in that moment, it's not about you anymore. It's about what's on your chest and that's your country. So uh, for me, I take that very, very seriously and I don't like letting people down. So um, I was ready. I was beyond ready for, for that moment and whether I happened to finish the race with a broken leg or without one, it was, it was going to happen. I watched back that event because at the time I was 13, 13 when it happened. So I watched it back on YouTube the other day and the commentators actually were speaking down on you guys a lot. You're the, the four lads who were running for team USA in that prelim. And one of, so I've got a quote here that one of them said, and he would just said, it's a good team, but not one to frighten the rest of the world. And because obviously there was all this history of, I think Team USA had not, they'd lost one gold medal before that. Did, did it almost, annoy, did it annoy you the way that people were looking at your you and your teammates during that event? Um, You know, I do a little bit of commentating. Um, I've worked with NBC Sports, um, ESPN on, on different things. And in the moment, you don't know, unless you get a, a injury report or something like that, you don't know what's going on. If somebody's just running slow, you're probably just going to think they're running slow. Um, mm-hmm. Or if they're not up to par where, where you think or what on paper thinks they should be, then you're probably going to play the part of, you know, what's going on? Why are they doing this? X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the commentators who I know personally, uh, they had some pretty snarky things to say. Um, obviously, like you said, with our rich history in the event, um, we'd never lost the event except, you know, the boycott from the Moscow Olympics in 1980 yeah. is the only one that you were talking about. And uh, to go in knowing that, we we knew that. But the thing is, we tied with the Bahamas. I think they actually gave us the win. And we set an Olympic prelim record with the time mm-hmm. with me running about two seconds, anywhere from one and a half to two seconds slower than what I would have run had my leg been healed. Um, so I often look back at that, but I, I don't, I don't discredit those individuals because they didn't know what was going on. And then really being a, that we were in London and a time change, a lot of people back home didn't realize till the next day what truly had happened. And then it was like a complete flip, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he finished the race for his teammates or they finished the race. They were able to make it onto the final and actually ran the fastest time ever been run in an Olympic prelim. So when you look at it like that, it was kind of like bittersweet. It was like, man, did I let my team down? Um, but also, gosh, could do people realize like what I just did? Like, I didn't have to do that. I chose to do that. Yeah. So it's incredible what you did. It like for, you know, the ability to push through, like if, if you Google your name, you'll, there's endless, you know, articles on it, videos, what have you. Um, but to push through that final 200 meters is ridiculous probably I can't even imagine the pain you were going through at the time. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty, it was pretty painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely pretty painful. Um, but yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on the moment itself because as I've said, you can Google your name and you'll find a hundred articles on the fact. Um, but one question I do want to ask about that was, does it almost frustrate you that, that is what you're known for. The guy whose leg broke during the 400 meter relay, well, four by 400s relay. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's not frustrating. I mean, obviously I've told the story like a million times yeah. uh, and it actually became an art, an art form for me because I ended up uh, going into motivational and public speaking internationally uh, and, and domestically as well, but on the story itself. So people just wanted to hear that, that insight from a POV. Um, I, I know, and, and my agent that I had at the time, um, he was like, 
you're going to make more money and you're going to be more known for this very moment than anything else you will ever do. He told me that. And uh, rest in peace, he passed away like two years ago. Um, but that always stuck with me. It's been 11 years now, I believe, uh, coming up on 11 years this this August. And it's still like it happened like last year or something. Because it's it's a story and, again, a test of true self-perseverance and, and true leadership, teamwork, um, true grit, integrity, whatever words you can coin with it, it kind of goes hand in hand with any situation. Um, and you can take athletics out of it. It's, it's like, do I want to quit this job or do I want to finish it? Do I want to um, be able to, to finish this paper that I have due for this project or do I press through and finish it? So it's, it's accessible in a way to like a lot of different scenarios. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that because that's the bittersweet part. So that's the sweet part. I'm grateful for that because I became a a figure that people can look up to, um, even if it's for motivation, for inspiration, whatever the case may be, that giving situation gave them some kind of light that they could shine brighter for. So I'm grateful for that. And I would never, you know, take that back from anyone. So when it comes to that, I'm cool with it. Now, I would never go do the same thing again. Uh, hopefully it wouldn't happen that way. Um, but if it did, then it is what it is. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to have had, honestly, when people ask me, I'm, I'm grateful to have had three guys who are badasses who could run fast and finish the race for us. That's what I'm grateful for. Mm. Yeah. Then the injury itself, was that your first large, like sort of large scale injury that you've had in your career? Yeah, in my professional career, correct. Yeah, that was that was mm. literally the only one um, so far. I in 2016, before the trials, I had a near career and life ending car accident. Um, I I was going to ask you about that as well. Later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that that that's the only other you know that's the only other thing. Mm. So this one being your first. Um, large scale injury that you had obviously going from training five six days a week your routine is set you know even when you finish at the games you'll go home you'll go and train to not be able to do that and you know not see probably not see an end in sight how was that for you to deal with being sidelined for so long um I had to become very mentally strong like I, I had to really train my mind to, because like you said, like you're doing this thing every single day, maybe something different every day, but it's for this one thing and your body and your mind become aligned in, in doing those things. It's like, this is what we're doing today. Tomorrow we're going to come back and do it again. Wednesday, we're going to, we're going to rest. Thursday, we're going to come back and do it again. Friday, we're going to come back and do it again. Saturday, we're going to come back and do it again. Sunday, you're going to rest. And we're going to repeat all of that over and over and over. Um, and then throw in some competitions here and there or some appearances here and there. So your body and mind become, I guess, like used to doing that one thing. So when you take that away, it's like, what do I do now? Like, I don't know how to do anything else right now. Like, this is this is the thing I've been doing for the last two years. So, like, for me, I had to just scale back. I, I had a son uh, who was born like a few months after that. So, um that kind of took my mind away from it as well while I was recovering and doing rehab and stuff like that all week. Um, so I had a good, a good structure around me to, to really ground me and to, to let me know that, Hey, look, you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to come back from this. Some people may not believe that, but if you work hard, if you take your time and don't rush this, you'll come back from it and you'll be stronger. And sure enough, it, it happened that way. How was it taking a step back though? Cause for myself, you know, when I've had injuries and stuff, I like I'm really big into training, big into running. But when I've had injuries, I found it very hard to step back and just allow myself to recover because it's almost that thing of you know where you're at now, and you hate like I hate the fact that I can't be at where I have been. How did you find that as an athlete, like someone who gets you know you get paid to do that, you get paid yeah. to be where you're at, and to not be able to do it? How was it for me? It was all about. And, and this is something that I, I tell athletes all the time. Um, 
Anybody can write down on a piece of paper that they're going to become an Olympian, but it's not going to happen overnight. Anybody can say, I'm going to PR by a half second tomorrow, but it's not going to happen. You have to have a process and a plan to get to that end goal. So even after the injury, I had an end goal or I had a goal set that I wanted to be back by pin relays of the following year. And that was my first race back, pin relays. And I ran faster than I did that same year when I was at my peak. I ran faster. Mm. So it's all it's it's different strokes for everybody, but you have to be able to go to a place that you've never been before to be an elite athlete. You have to be able to go to a place mentally that you've never been before to get through those times because believe it or not, they're gonna come. Whether it's an injury or some kind of setback or or an ideal of adversity, that's gonna come about. I and mean, you have to be ready and prepared for it. So I, I say you know, you prepare for the worst and just hope for the best. And so we go into every situation, even now with other sports, um, preparing for anything bad to happen, but just hoping for the best. You've come back from your injury um, and you're at that first race that you just mentioned and you ran faster. But before starting the race, was there almost a level of uncertainty in yourself as to whether or not you would be back to that 100%? Uh, yeah. So I remember the beginning stages when I was cleared to run again. Um, I went back to do some base training uh, probably 17 weeks later. And I remember in any kind of rep that I was doing on the track, when I would get 200 meters in, my body would just instantly go back into defense mode and I would shut down like I couldn't finish workouts. And it took me talking to a sports psychologist to finally get over that that issue like going over different mind tricks and uh really training your brain and your mind to offset all the negative stuff and create positive imagery for yourself um so i encourage that for all athletes um just being able to talk to somebody about even if it's like you just talk to somebody about your day or you write out about your day or do a journal or something like that just take your mind somewhere else outside of of your sport even if you're talking about it just take it outside of it um, so that you don't bring those those negative, you know, I guess like cons or whatever it is that's going on in your life because you do have a life outside of sport, right? So yeah. you don't want to bring that in. You don't want that to affect everything that you need to do. You want to have a, a, a solely focused mind on whatever your craft is and, and, and perfecting that. So I did that. And then once I was able to overcome that, that's when it was like, okay, I'm back. Like, I'm good. Nothing can stop me now. So uh, that's kind of how we took that approach. Um, and then, you know, obviously with everything that had happened, here I am now raised to another level of like pure vision. Like everybody knows what you did, how you did it. And now they want to see you run, but they also want to, they want to see you, feel you, touch you and, and let you know how great you are or how you've inspired them. So now it's like another target on your back. Like I have to do this. I need to do this. But I made sure that I stayed within my lane, no pun intended. Um, and just did everything that I wanted to accomplish. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, just, just took things slowly. I didn't try to accelerate getting back. Uh, my sponsor Nike understood that, you know, I was overcoming an injury and, um, I was able to be back in time. So it just worked out. The Rio Olympics are coming around. Um, and you go to the Olympic trials and obviously you didn't make the 2016 Olympics. How did that make you feel at that mo like in the moment when you realized you hadn't qualified? How we how were you feeling then? Because obviously the Olympics is the goal for everyone, and you've yeah. been once, but you know to try and make it a second time. Yeah, 20, 2016 was a very rough year for me off the track and on the track. But I believe that everything that was happening off the track, like family, emotional, mental type stuff. I believe all of that stuff was affecting my training. Um, I got to a point where I qualified for the Olympic trials. I actually hit the Olympic mark. And then it was just like so much stuff was going on. I was dealing with a brand at the time that um, did not have my best interest at heart. And I was stressed out about all that stuff. And then I had equipment malfunction while I was at the trials. Um, and so it was just a lot. It was just a lot. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. Like, I just need to end my season right here and go back to the drawing board and then figure it out. Figure it out from there. Um, and then fast forward a year later, I'm U.S. champion. So it's it's just 
sometimes that stuff happens. You know, I feel like everyone's story is written already um, and we just have to play the part. And sometimes we're going to be approached with things where we don't really understand in the moment, but it's going to set us up for for success along the way somewhere. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've said there that obviously 2016 was a rough year and you finish your season at that point, but then it's then capped off not shortly after the Olympics had happened that you had that car accident. So what yeah. what happened in that whole situation? Yeah, I was um, I was actually leaving a speaking engagement out in Cherokee, North Carolina. Uh, my coach at the time was 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 coaching out there with a high school on the Indian Reservation for Cherokee, um, and I was coming through a city called Maggie Valley, which is kind of mountainous and, and hilly and curvy. And um, the car that I was driving, the front wheel axle malfunctioned, and I lost control of the of the car going downhill uh, or down the mountain. And uh, I don't remember a lot of it because I was kind of like out. Uh, but what I was told is that, and from the video, is that the wheel ended up like either coming off or the axle broke, and it made me go into incoming lanes, two lanes of traffic, into a stone or like brick wall. It's like twelve feet high, and uh, when I woke up, I was, I guess, I think in the hospital. So that's that's really all I remember. But I remember seeing this white light. Um, now that I think about it a few times, I I think about it. I remember seeing this white light and I remember like a burning smell. That's all I really remember. And I also remember, although my son wasn't with me, I remember putting my hand back to see if he was okay. And that's, that's everything I remember. But when I got, when I was finally healed, I, I saw a medic and, you know, they came and checked on me and things like that. People came and checked on me. Um, and one medic told me that I actually got out of the vehicle and tried to walk, but my foot was broken. So I couldn't, I just collapsed to the ground and like face was all beat up and yeah, I had lacerations everywhere. Hips were displaced, shoulders out. It was crazy. It was crazy. They said it was like something out of like a horror movie or something. I don't know how I just kind of like got out of the car. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, um, it was rough. You know, that was, it was, like I said, it was already a rough season and a rough year. And then you add that to the pie and it's like, man, what is going on? But I realized shortly after that, that I needed to be broken down again to be built back up stronger. That's what was going on. And like Mm -hmm. I said, sometimes you are faced with adversity that you don't understand, but then you finally realize why you were taken through those things. It was because you, it was a test. It was like, we're going to see how how we, how bad we can get you down. How low can we get you to see if you stay above water? That's what we want. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it's almost like how low can we... I, I quite like those theories of, you know, we're, test, we're tested throughout life. And to see how low you can go to then the next, not probably not even a year later, you're then the U.S. champion. So you've had the lowest of lows and now the highest of highs. Right. So... That day of the, the, the you know, U.S. championships, did you go into that thinking you could win that race? Oh, I already knew I was going to win. See, the mentality yeah. shift from there to, yeah. you know, your Olympic trials that for the 2012 Olympics is exponentially different. Oh, yeah. Going from I'll finish seventh and I've done my job to I will win is, you know, crazy. Yeah, because then those 2012 trials, like I said, I had all those people around me and at that time, that's when I looked at results all the time. And I was like trying to compare myself to other people and trying to like duplicate their performances when I was like, I'm not them, I'm me. So when the gun went off in 2012 at the trials, it was like, I became me. I finally became me. I ran my race and I was like, no one's going to beat me. And they're going to have to come get me to beat me. They did. <laughs> they ended up coming to beat me. Um, but that's the mindset I had. And then, you know, I just channeled that same mindset um to that u.s championships for indoors and i was like i'm gonna get out and everybody's gonna have to run me down to beat me i'm not gonna look at anybody they're gonna have to look at me the whole race and that's that's kind of how you know i went about that so yeah it was a good uh it was a good race so you're at that point you're preparing for the tokyo 2020 olympics um four-year cycles in place and then everything's thrown out the water because of covid so at what point 
was it during that period that you took the transition to try out bobsled um so i was training for tokyo like everyone else was and then i went through that slump that a lot of people went through mentally um and really not so mentally it's just like didn't have access to facilities didn't have you had to make things work as they did i remember running right outside my uh in my development i remember finding a hill in my development because you really couldn't go anywhere you're kind of grounded in a sense um and then of course didn't have a gym ended up like buying all this equipment that i could find um i remember making a uh, a front rack or a squat rack with ladders like <laughs> it, it it you just had to do what you had to do and yeah um I know for me, you know, I'm mentally tough. Like I've, I've trained my mind and things like that, but I could only imagine, you know, what athletes really went through that, that weren't prepared for it. And I mean, none of us were, but if you weren't like mentally sound, like that could have broken you. And it did a lot of athletes. So for me, I was like, you know what? I'm really not enjoying this. And then once I found out that it was going to be pushed back another year to 2021, I was like, I think I just need to take a break. I was like, I just need to take a break because I've been doing all this training and it's like, man, you've qualified, but now you can't even go show what you, you know, what you've got. And there, it's nothing now. So I didn't, I think I did like one or two races. I had a little nagging uh, Achilles injury from the car accident still stemming over. Um, and then it was at that point where I was reached by USA bobsled because I think that because they didn't see me running and stuff, they thought I kind of like retired, which I still haven't. Um, but they approached me and asked me to come do a tryout. And then that's kind of how that, that happened in late 2020, early 2021. So I heard in an interview that you did that, you know, from when you were a sprinter, you weighed around 185 pounds and now you weigh there, there about 220. So how, how on earth did you put that much weight on and feel comfortable in doing so? Like that's a lot. Yeah, so it it didn't happen in a few weeks. It was over a yeah. course of a, a few months. Um, I changed, you know, track and field. Like I was, I was slender. I was like four or five percent body fat, um, really chiseled, things like that. So it was okay to gain mass in the sport of bobsled because obviously you need that to sustain what we go through, um, and also like the weight of the sled. A lot of people don't realize that we have to have a minimum maximum range of 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 the sled weight. Um, so when I was told that it, it's ideal to be above like 215, I was like, okay, I've never been over 200 pounds before. I don't know how this is going to work. Um, because in 2012, I was 174 pounds in 2016, I was probably 180 somewhere in there. And then in 2020, I was probably, like you said, 180, 180 to 185, somewhere in there. So I packed on a lot of weight, but it was just because we changed how I trained so I wasn't running as much, so it was easier to keep the weight on. And then the way I ate and dieted and all that stuff, we just upped my protein and, you know, just went, I went and did it about the right way. I went to my nutritionist and I said, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. How can we, you know, set this calendar up to where I'm this weight at this time and then increase and increase and increase till we get to it and then we maintain it. So that's kind of how we uh, went about that. How? Because per, like personally myself, you know, like you feel comfortable at a certain weight. Like me, it's around that 185 pound sort of weight. And the thought of putting on another 30 pounds, 40 pounds, it's like, it's almost uncomfortable. It was very so, uncomfortable. Mm, um, I was gonna... Because like I said, I was used to my body even looking a certain way. I felt fat in a sense. Um, and yeah. that's no offense to anybody that's 225 pounds that doesn't do a sport. You're not fat, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's a personal thing, isn't it? Yeah. But for me, I was so used to feeling a certain way, looking a certain way, being used to this body. Um, but I think what I had to realize is like, okay, this th- that was for that and this is for this. And you have to differentiate from the two and uh, and just make it work. So the first year was, was tough because I was competing in bobsled my first year last year at um, – at like 190, I think I was like 190. I got it up to 190, and it—you just can't do it that way. You cannot do it that way. You have to have power, speed, mass, all of that together. And so we uh, built a program around it and, and made it work. So yeah, now we're we're all good. What was the first time on the ice like when you first started pushing a slide? 
Uh, the first time was, it was a crazy experience because obviously I hadn't done it before. I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you hear all these stories like, oh, it's like getting in a tin can and getting pushed down a hill. Or some people were like, oh, it's super smooth. I'm like, there's no way it's super smooth. I see all those intricate turns. Um, but until you do it yourself, you truly don't know what it feels like. And it feels different on every every track. Um, there's some places where there's a lot of pressure. There's some places where we go and you don't feel any pressure at all. Um, there's some places you go and somebody may say, oh, I felt it through the Chrysler. Or, and I may say, I didn't feel anything. Um, so it just, it was, it was a, uh, a very unique experience for me. Um, my pilot, um, Nicole vote, who just recently retired, shout out to Nicole female. So I went on my first ride with a female. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, to do a, a co-ed or, you know, uh, mixed gender, a mixed gender relay sort type thing that they do in yeah. track and field now. So that's how I took my first trip in uh, Park City, Utah with Nicole. And, um, you know, it was it was rough because of some things that happened to the sled prior to me getting in, which weren't attended to or whatever. But it, it was super rough. And, um, you know, I got out of the sled and I was like, oh, this is if that's the worst it can get, then I'm gonna be OK. And that's that's kind of how I got over that initial, quote unquote, fear of going down mm -hmm. the ice and, and being at the top of the hill and knowing that you're going to conquer the mountain. That's that's kind of how I go about it now is just. When you're up there with either just your pilot or with the pilot and the two other guys, there's there's a uh, there's just like this sense of urgency to like really push fast and and get in that sled as compact and as in sync as possible to know that our pilot is going to get us down safely and as fast as possible. So I love it now. It's like I stand up there. There's no fear. Like I'm not afraid at all. Um, and I'm just I'm anxious. Like I'm ready to go. Like fired up. Yeah. How how did your training change from you know track and field to then obviously the bobsled because both require you to be fast and powerful but in very different ways I would say yeah so we went back and we kind of like took some programs from former athletes and was like hey this is what they did and these were their results and this is what he did or she did and this was their results. How can we make it work for my body of work? Um, and so obviously 400 training was not going to work. So we went down to what would basically be a 60 meter to 100 meter sprinters uh, type training on the track. And then we added a lot of Olympic lifts that I didn't do in track and field for 400 meters. Um, so like more squats, more um, power cleans and, and things like that for overhead type movements as well. I never did those things. Um, so we added those things and that's when that power started really, really developing better. And uh, we started seeing the difference in being track and field manio to bobsled manio. Now, so how long is it? Three more years until the next Olympics is coming around for Winter Olympics. So you've had a year of training, well, a year for this cycle you've had training. How do you feel in the build-up to the next Olympics? Oh, I feel great. I feel, you feel great. Like you we, could make we already it. Have, oh, yeah, I'm going to make it. Yeah, we, we already it. have the plan. We're, we've already taken this. This is the finish line. We've taken that, and we worked our way back, and we already have a plan set in place every year to get certain results, um, to build our body, to go to certain places, and all of that. And then I just have to make sure that I intertwine that and gel with the team that I'm with, and we're going to make it work. So what are you doing now that's going to set you set you up to make it to that Olympics? So what I'm doing right now that's going to help me is I'm being smart with my training. I'm really taking my time because as a 35-year-old, I'm not the 24-year-old I was at the London Games. So I have to make sure that, you know, we do it the, the right way. We set small attainable goals to get to where we need to be. And that, you know, I just stay healthy. That's the most important thing is just staying healthy and then just making sure that I continue to show teamwork and leadership and things like that. And I'll, I'll be just fine. So you're obviously in your mid-30s now. And that means that you've probably got, you know, half a decade, maybe a bit more of an athletic career left. So what have you been putting in place over the past, you know, past 10 years, which is going to set you up thereafter? 
Yeah, so off the track or the ice, like I have businesses set up. Um, I told you, obviously, I do some commentating, so voiceover mm-hmm. or color con- uh, color analyst for uh, certain TV brands. Um, I also do motivational speaking and, and appearances and things like that. Hosting anything with a microphone and a camera, like I'm there. Like that's that's my alley. Um, mm-hmm. But I envision starting a uh, elite training facility where you can get your one-stop shop for everything. So you don't have to go to the chiropractor. I'm going to have a chiropractor there. You don't have to go get a massage therapist. I got it here. You don't. You can do the mental training you need to do. You can get the nutrition you need to get for elite high school, middle school, even elementary school athletes. Are, it's crazy how they're training now. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, offer it to pro, pro league athletes as well. Um, so that's kind of how, how we want to do. So I don't necessarily want to be a coach per se. I want to be an educator. I feel like yeah. the term educator just means a lot more to me because I do have an education degree, um, uh, my master's. So being able to educate people on things that I didn't have that I learned about that made me successful and continue to make me make good strides in what I you know, continue to do at this time. Um, I want them to be, I want them to have access to that. So um, that's what I want to provide. It's crazy, isn't it, the way kids are training now? Like I used to work in a gym quite like what you're describing there, where we had we had physios, nutritionists, S&C coaches, general personal trainers for general population. And we had um, a group which were coming on a Tuesday, a Tuesday, Wednesday, and a Friday called the Elite Development Squad. And it was for kids who were aged like from, I think, 8 up to 16, who were track athletes, rugby players, football players, all this when I was a kid, all we did was play, we we train and play football. There was no, yeah. there was nothing else. These kids are coming in, they're squatting, they're power cleaning, they're doing, they're jumping, sprinting, and it's crazy because the difference we're going to see in the next ten, fifteen years in terms of athletic ability from even now, when we're seeing like the best of the best. Yep. I cut like it's going to be crazy to see what happens in all sports. Yeah, evolution and development are becoming hand in hand. It's crazy, like. Mm. I mean, obviously, I, I come across a lot of different athletes of different walks of life. Um, but obviously, when they're trying to get to the next level, they know who to call. So I, I see them as young as like six and seven years old and all the way up to uh, the pros and obviously elite college level athletes as well. So it's it's crazy, but there's a demand for it. So I'm going to supply it. If you could tell if so, you like you said, you spoke, you've had six and seven year olds who, you know, are looking to get become professional athletes. What advice would you give to those six and seven year olds now, knowing what it takes to make it as a professional athlete? Have fun. I think, um, you know, being a figure that that sees this stuff firsthand and has also experienced it um, and having to deal with the parents. Obviously, I deal with the parents when they're that young as well. And even up to the high school level athletes, I always deal with the parents. So, um I encourage everybody just to make sure, like, I understand that you're trying to perfect your craft. You're trying to get to the next level. You're trying to be the elite tag that's been put on you since you're probably five months old. But I want you to make sure that you're having fun, because if there's no fun involved in it, you will grow out of it. You won't love it anymore. Um, And then just take care of your body, because you can do all this training. But if you're not taking care of your body, you're actually not doing anything but hurting yourself in the long run. And your career will be shortened if you don't take care of your body. So. Uh, we make sure that with my with my training and my facilitating, we make sure that we stress that. That's like high level importance. So the one last question that I like to ask everyone is, how would you like to be remembered? I just hope that I am remembered. Um, I would assume and hope that everything that I've done um, and that I'm going to do will inspire somebody, will motivate somebody, will encourage somebody to be better than they were before they met me or before they heard my story after they hear it. That's that's how I want to remember it. I want to be remembered as the guy who had a huge smile, a huge impact and, and did a lot with a little. Um, and, and in doing so that the people that hear my story and, and remember me by the things that I've done, they'll be able to do anything that they want to do. So that's kind of how Amazing. I want to remember it. Mate, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah, yeah, tell no everyone worries. where they can find you and sort of support you and follow you, what have you. Yeah, just uh, all social handles are at Manio Mitchell, M-A-N-T-E-O-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. So Instagram, Twitter, uh, 
I think I don't really use Snapchat, so I'm not gonna give you that one. Uh, <laughs> Facebook as well. I'm on there. I'm an old school guy. Uh, but yeah, if you guys have questions, comments, concerns, hit me up. I promise you, I'll get back to you. Appreciate it, mate. Really appreciate your yeah. time. No worries. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to that episode with Manny O'Mitchell. What a guy. Um, you know, to run through a broken leg, um, half his race through a broken leg, and they still qualify for the uh, you know the Olympic finals, and to push through adversity in you know years gone. So like with his with his car accident and all that sort of stuff. Incredible guy, and I wish him all the best in terms of his bobsled career. And with the mindset he's got, it seems like he's really going to push for that gold, silver, or bronze medal at the Olympics. So I wish him the best of luck in the future. You can find him at the links in the description down below. So go support him. And also, please remember to support the podcast. So like, subscribe, share the podcast. I would really appreciate it. In the coming weeks, I will be doing a little giveaway. Just to say thanks for those who do listen. And I appreciate you all. So look out for that. I will see you next Monday for another video.